we're continuing the series on man, the image of God. And uh, in this particular series, we're looking at the body of man, which is the outward man. As we real trust in scripture that there is an inward man and there is an outward man. In the series thus far, we've had a look at the inward man, which is made up of the will, the spirit, the conscience, and the mind. Um, and we're closing off this series now by looking at the outward man, which is our bodies. And um, the section we're looking at now is uh, what we've, I've entitled it, uh, the living sacrifice. For our bodies are to be offered unto God as a living sacrifice, we saw in Romans. And um, we said at the outset of this teaching that this teaching will become, uh, will be very practical in nature because the way that we deal with our bodies is as practical as you can get. And uh, we're looking at passages of scripture to see how God um, expects us to treat our bodies and what we can expect of Him with regards to the way that uh, He looks after our bodies as well. And so in, in line with that, we saw in the previous teaching that in fact our bodies belong to God. Um, and we likened that the relationship that we have with our bodies, because we've obviously understood that it's our inward man that dwells within this outward man, which is our physical bodies. And the physical body we saw is our, our house that we reside in. And so we saw that the analogy that we could basically uh, explain the concept of how it is that God does own our bodies is that God, in fact, is now the landlord. He, is, he owns the rights to our bodies, and we have become his tenants in that he allows us to live inside these bodies which he now owns. And the scripture we looked at in line with that was in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And the scripture says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are gods and so very clearly scripture teaches us that these bodies now belong to god and um, we saw as a result of our bodies belonging to god um, that there's certain things that we need to now make adjustments in our lifestyle um, and so again getting back to the concept of god being the landlord we being the tenant uh, the landlord has certain our rights to the property and also has certain responsibilities to maintain that property. The tenant also has certain rights to that property and that they can use the property, um, but nevertheless they also have certain responsibilities in the way that they look after their property. And so we just looked at that example in the natural to try and understand the spiritual aspect of how it is possible that we can dwell within these bodies but in fact, these bodies now belong to God, under the new covenant, that is. And so we saw that uh, under the old covenant, that relationship did not uh, exist. God was not the owner of their bodies, and they were not tenants inside his property, because their spirits were not born again, and so God was not dwelling inside their bodies. And so God didn't, didn't expect them to offer their bodies to him as a living sacrifice. But we saw that the, the, the sacrifice has changed under the new covenant. Under the old covenant, the sacrifice was um, the bodies of animals that were offered on, offered on the altar. 
Um, but under the new covenant, it is our physical bodies, our bodies, that we offer, uh, so to speak, on the altar. And uh, the scripture we looked at, which is pretty much a uh, cornerstone text for this series of teachings on the living sacrifice, is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The scripture says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And so we saw that uh, there's very, the various aspects of the Old Covenant uh, sacrifices and how that um, could be then brought across into the New Covenant in the way that we were to offer up our, our, our bodies as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We saw that under the Old Covenant, uh, a sacrifice could not be offered to God if it had a blemish in it. And so in the same manner, our bodies cannot be offered to God unless they are holy and acceptable. Now don't get hung up on the blemish slide because you know if there's a defect in our bodies that's not a case God says well I don't accept your body because um, God's not talking about um, the physical defect in our bodies he's talking about the way that we treat our bodies and the way we use them are we using them for his righteousness or are we using his body for unrighteousness and so that's really the um, the comparative between the old and the new with regards to that and then we began to look at the area of fasting because remember we said um, that this teaching will be very practical because it's dealing with our physical bodies which uh, obviously in, kind of pushes us into uh, an area of being very practical. And uh, we dealt with the fact that our Lord Jesus has not commanded us to fast but in fact he has strongly implied that we should fast and that we would fast. For he actually said in his scripture, um, in Mark 2, verse 20, he says, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so our Lord has implied very strongly that we uh, should be fasting in this particular age that we're in now, because the church age is the age when the bridegroom has been taken away. And uh, we're all waiting for our Lord to, be, uh, to return to us one day. Um, and then we, our Lord taught us how to fast. We went through the scripture along that line. And then we also saw the spiritual connotations because we said, although there's going to be a, a very much of a practical aspect to this teaching on the, the body of man, um, all that we teach regarding the body of man does have spirit, spiritual connotations to it because it's a spiritual walk that we walk in this new, uh, walk as, as uh, born-again believers. And so we had to look at well, you know, what is the benefit of fasting? Because you know, people would say, yeah, God, that fasting doesn't change God. And that is quite true, God, God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. But nevertheless, um, we saw that fasting is in fact a form of humbling ourselves before God. And the book of James teaches us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so we said, if we want to partake of the grace of God, um, then we need to be humbling ourselves before the Lord so that he can give us grace. And people will say, oh, I thought we were under grace, so why do I need more grace? We always need more grace because um, there are things that take place in our lives that unless the grace of God is imparted to us in those areas, we will not be able to do that which the Lord has called us to do. 
And so we saw examples of in the Psalm, Psalm 35, 13 and Psalm 69, 10 of how our Lord Jesus, when he walked the earth, humbled himself before God the Father through fasting. And so if Jesus had to do it, then we certainly are no better than our, our Lord and Master. And so we should follow his example and humble ourselves through fasting. And then we had a look at uh, the aspect of tying up again the Old Testament sacrifice with the New Testament sacrifice. Because don't forget, this whole uh, series we're dealing with now is the living sacrifice, which is these bodies. It's these bodies that we offer up to God as a living sacrifice. And so we wanted to do another comparative between Old Testament sacrifices and the New. And we saw that Old Testament sacrifices that were offered on the altar, talking about animal sacrifices now, always the fat was offered to God because the fat was, uh, belonged to God. And so that is the part that was always offered. Now, there are other uh, sacrifices when the whole animal was offered to the Lord, but there was never an instance where the animal was offered to the Lord where the fat was not offered because uh, we saw that in Psalm 109 20 no um, um, I don't have the passage of scripture with me now but we saw that uh, the Bible talks about the fact that the fat belongs to God and so we had a look at our Lord Jesus um, Leviticus, Leviticus 3.16 the scripture says all the fat is the Lord's. And then we looked at our Lord Jesus when he went to the cross, uh, for he offered up his body to God the Father as a, a sacrifice at that time. And we saw that when he went to the cross, that's in Psalm 109, 24, our Lord had been fasting leading up to the period when he went, in, went to the cross. And the Bible teaches us that he had no fat on his body. So our Lord had fasted to the, to the degree that all the fat of his body had been uh, removed by the time he, had, he went to the cross. And so there was a type of offering up his fat to God. And uh, we saw under the Old Covenant the, the two sacrifices that are always linked together is the sin offering and the burnt offering. Now the sin offering, um, if you can go read it up yourself, the sin offering it was only the fat of the animal that was offered on the altar and burnt on the altar. The rest of the animal had to be destroyed outside of the camp. Then the burnt offering was offered up, and the burnt offering, the whole animal, was burnt on the altar. Nothing was left outside. Nothing. In both cases, the priests couldn't partake of any of those offerings. Those offerings were for God and God alone. So we said that under the Old Covenant, God had to have two sacrifices to show us the type and shadow of Jesus our Lord and the sacrifice that He made with His body before God uh, when He went to the cross. Because the Bible teaches us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus suffered outside of the camp. And so he's, the, the type and shadow was the sin offering. Um, because the, with the sin offering, only the fat was burnt on the altar. The, the animal, an, animal was then destroyed outside of the camp. And so that was the sin offering. But the burnt offering was then completely offered up to God. And so in, in, with regards to Jesus' sacrifice, he offered up his fat to God before he went to the cross in that he fasted and he had no fat on his body. Um, at the cross, he then suffered outside of the camp. Then he offered his body up completely to God uh, when he went into the Holy of Holies, and that was the type of the burnt offering. 
So those two offerings together spoke of the offering that our Lord Jesus presented to God the Father when he died on the cross. And so that's just, those two offerings were always a type and a shadow of our Lord Jesus' offering that he made of himself to God the Father when he went to the cross. So Jesus didn't fast um, to because the fat belonged to God from the Old Testament. So Jesus recognized, well, the fat belongs to God. The Old Testament was written as a type and a shadow of what Jesus was going to do. So Jesus was always going to fast before he went to the cross uh, and he would have no fat on his body. And so that is why under the Old Covenant, God was telling us all the time, the fat belongs to God, the fat belongs to God, because that is what his son would do when his son went to the cross. And so that is just giving us a, a bit of spiritual insight to the spiritual aspect of a very practical thing called fasting. And so one of the things that happen when we fast is that our fat is offered up to God because obviously when we fast, your body draws on the fat reserves and that is the first part of the body that uh, is affected when one fasts. Um, and so we just want to have a look at, we, we want to continue with this, this um, section on fasting. And we want to have a look now at uh, more scripture along this line in, under the New Covenant to just show us that fasting is a definite part of the Christian walk, the believer's walk under the New Covenant. Um, because I, I know there is a lot of erroneous teaching in the church that you know kind of says fasting is works and we shouldn't be doing it. Uh, but nevertheless, Fasting is definitely a part of the church's mandate given to us by our Lord. Because remember he said, in that day, they will fast. He has not commanded us. It's our choice. We decide because we, uh, God can't humble us. Well, I suppose he can in a way, but we, sh we are the ones who humble ourselves before God. And one of the ways we do that is through the area of fasting. And so Paul and his ministry team um, practice fasting all the time. Um, he, you, you, read, you read his writing, he talks time and again about um, many fasts that they uh, went on. And uh, one of the scriptures we can look at is in Acts 14 verse 23. The scripture says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so here's Paul and his ministry team, Paul Barnabas was with him at this time. Uh, they would go and plant churches, and then they would appoint elders in those churches. Now when they appointed the elders in the church, they would pray, obviously. But before that time, leading up to that time of prayer and laying hands on the elders and appointing them, they would give themselves to fasting. And so they, they understood that fasting had the, the uh, effect of attracting the grace of God and they would need the grace of God to be imparted into the lives of those elders so that they could stand in the in the ministry that the Lord had called them to. Um, and so you know, fasting was definitely practiced by the New Testament saints and we as we're still part of the same church nothing's changed. Um, it's amazing to me how people tend to think that when the last apostle died then the church changed. And that's not the case at all. Um, the church remains exactly the same. We have the same Lord. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Word of God. Um, 
nothing has changed. People have, have, have been born into the earth and gone home to be with the Lord over the ages, but the church remains the same. And so what was available to the New Testament saints at the early church is available to the church today. And the practices of the early church are the practices that the, the church today should observe as well. Now, with regards to the aspect of fasting, there's also uh, there are scientific studies that have been done. Uh, you can go and look it up online that show that over the long term, fasting actually does benefit our health. Uh, so there is that added spin-off uh, because they, again, don't forget this teaching on the body is going to be very practical. And so, people who do regular fasting through their lives. It has been found that over a long period of time, there is an actual, an actual benefit to the health of those individuals. Now, that's just scientific study. That is not um, what the Bible teaches us. But um, nevertheless, God will not in encourage us to do something that will be detrimental to our health. And it has been proven by scientific studies that uh, fasting over a period of time has the impact of actually improving the health of that individual. Um, and then there's also the other aspects to the, the spirit, uh, spiritual side of fasting. And the, the scripture we can look at is in Mark chapter 9, verse 28 and 29. Scripture says, And when they had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And so this particular account, if you recall, what happened was the Lord and Peter, James and John had come down from the mountain and the Lord's disciples were at the bottom of the mountain and there was this chap who had his son, he was a, um, uh, he was suffered from epilepsy, I think it was, and the, the, the disciples had tried to cast the demon out of the, the son. And they couldn't do it. The demon wouldn't, wouldn't budge. And so our Lord comes and uh, so the, the, the father cries out, Lord, won't you please help? And so our Lord cast the demon out. And afterwards, the disciples come to our Lord privately and say, you know, why couldn't we cast it out? Now, the reason that they asked the Lord that was because they were used to, up until that time, that incident, they had been used to casting out demons because prior to that, our Lord had imparted power to the disciples um, both the, the grouping of the 12 apostles plus the 70 disciples. And he had sent them out to go preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And that's what they had been doing. And so they were quite used to casting out demons in the name of Jesus. So now this incident arises and they cast out this demon in the name of Jesus and the, the, in the name of Jesus and the demon doesn't budge. And so our Lord comes and he casts out the demon. So the disciples now approach the Lord afterwards and say, you know, why couldn't we cast it out? And our Lord answers. Now he gives them two answers. He says, because of your unbelief, you can look at another account in scripture. But he also says this kind, so this kind of demon, this type of demon, can come, not come out except by prayer and fasting. And so we already looked uh, in the previous teaching, the Lord's disciples had not given themselves to fasting at all while they followed the Lord's ministry. He, on the other hand, had given himself to fasting on numerous occasions. Our Lord practiced fasting as part of his lifestyle. But the disciples hadn't done that. But Jesus had. And obviously Jesus had given himself too much time to pray as well. 
So when Jesus came to uh, deal with the demon, the demon left. So we say, okay, well, Jesus just had the stronger faith. That's not the case here. Um, and I'm not going to get into the, uh, the sidetrack of what, where their faith fell, because our Lord did say, because of your unbelief. But the point here is, is that our Lord said this particular type of demon will only come out through prayer and fasting. So the demons that those disciples had been dealing with up until this incident, um, they could deal with even though they hadn't been giving themselves much time to prayer and no time to fasting. Um, but this particular demon required that the individual who's going to be used of God to cast the demon out had to have given themselves over to much prayer and fasting. So why is that necessary? Because don't forget now we're dealing with a spiritual aspect because the, we would come up with exactly the same problem today that the disciples came up with in that situation. In that we would be dealing with certain individuals uh, who would come up for prayer and we would not be able to deliver them because if we haven't met the requirement of prayer and fasting. So again, the question arises, why prayer and fasting to deal with certain kinds of demons? Well, there is another aspect to prayer and fasting in that it attracts the grace of God, but it also attracts the anointing of God. And so when one gives themselves over to uh, protracted times of prayer and fasting, the anointing from God increases upon that individual's life. And when Jesus um, spoke about the fact that demons were driven out of individuals, he said the finger of God drives out the demon. And so there are certain demons that require more anointing in order to remove them from an individual. And so a weak anointing is not going to be strong enough to drive out the demon from that individual. And so a stronger degree of anointing is required. Now, the stronger degree of anointing comes upon the individual if they give themselves over to regular times of prayer and fasting. That's one of the reasons why we do it as well. And so, as I say, our Lord had obviously met the requirements, and so it was not a problem for him to cast out that particular demon. Um, and so that's another spiritual aspect to this area of fasting. Um, if you want to be used effectively by the Lord in dealing with uh, various illnesses, most probably, but definitely in dealing with various demons out there, then you will have to give yourself over to spending protracted times in prayer and fasting. Now, another benefit with regards to fasting uh, that we can see in Scripture is that when we give ourselves over to fasting, we more clearly discern the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, under the New Covenant, we are meant as, as sons of God uh, to be led by the Holy Spirit. I think it's in Romans chapter 8. Scripture says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And then in verse 16 it says, there was verse 14, verse 16 it says, For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God or sons of God. And so the way that God leads the New Testament saint, we don't go to prophets. Um, so, you know, under the Old Testament, if you wanted to know what God wanted you to do, you would go visit the prophet and you would get, uh, bring an offering to him and he would seek God's counsel and then he would say to you, thus saith the Lord. And he would tell you what God said and then you can go away and do it. Under the new covenant it's different. We don't go to prophets to find out from prophets what is the Lord saying about my life. Because we, each one of us, there are prophets under the new covenant, uh, don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about in the area of guidance now. Um, 
All of us have the same Holy Spirit residing on the inside of us, the prophet of the Lord as well as the saint of the Lord. And so we, under the new covenant, are meant to seek the Lord's guidance by His Spirit in our spirit. For His Spirit bears witness with our spirit as to what the Lord's guidance is for our lives. And so when we give ourselves over to a period of fasting, there is the spiritual connotation that kicks in in that we are more uh, easily able to discern the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. God is able to speak to us more on a spiritual level. And we see evidence of that in Scripture. Um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, that is when Peter received the vision of the sheep being left down from heaven, in which were all the unclean animals, and God said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, I've never touched anything unclean, and no, nothing unclean has entered, in, uh, entered my lips. Um, and God said to him, You know, when God has cleansed man, don't call unclean. And God does that to him three times. Um, and God is, in that vision, revealed to Peter that uh, the Gentiles uh, were also called to come into the kingdom of God. That's why God said, what God has cleansed you must not call common. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he ministers to the Gentiles for the first time and they come into the kingdom. But prior to the Lord giving Peter that revelation through the vision, Peter had been spending time in fasting. And that revelation came to Peter while he was giving himself over to a period of fasting. Um, Cornelius, he on the other hand, had also been fasting and seeking the Lord. Uh, the background to Cornelius, now Cornelius was the Gentile um, who the angel appeared to and said, go get Peter, he's going to tell you words of life whereby you and your household may be saved. But prior to that, Cornelius had been praying and seeking the Lord because he had heard, he, Cornelius was a devout believer, but he was not a proselyte. So he had not yet, he hadn't converted to Judaism. He was still a Gentile. But nevertheless, he loved God. And so he, they, they lived in Caesarea. I don't know how you pronounce it, Caesarea, Caesarea, whatever. Um, and so Cornelius would go to the synagogue. He was not a proselyte, but he would go to the synagogue because he worshipped God. And so a, a controversy had arisen within the, the Jewish community because Philip had arrived in Caesarea. And Philip started to preach the gospel and say that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Um, and so the Jews were divided on this, on this issue because a lot of the Jews would then side in with Philip, but majority of the Jews would say, no, 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 that's not right. And so Cornelius, being a Gentile who loved God, was now caught up in a problem because now who was right? Was this Philip chap who came on, who just came into town, was he right? Or were the Jews right? And so Cornelius gave himself over to prayer and fasting. And then God said, dispatched an angel to Cornelius and said, I want you to go get hold of Peter, and Peter will come and preach the gospel to you, and that way you can come into the kingdom. Which then obviously Cornelius did, and Peter came, and so the Gentiles came into the kingdom. But the point remains is that it was during a time of prayer and fasting that God was able to dispatch the angel to speak to Cornelius. And so there is that spiritual aspect to it. And then the one last scripture we can have, and that, was, that is in Acts 10.30, by the way. And then uh, one last scripture we can look at is in Acts 13, verse 2. The scripture says, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, 
The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so we see Barnabas and Saul being sent out as apostles for the very first time in, in the church. Um, but they, they get sent out by the Holy Spirit in a period when they have when they're ministering to the Lord and fasting. And it's through their fasting that God is able to then impart uh, revelation knowledge to them as to what His will is for their lives. Um, and so part of ministering to the Lord is to fast. And because that's what they were doing, the scripture says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Links fasting with ministering to the Lord. Now, obviously, they were ministering to the Lord through prayer. And so prayer and fasting always go hand in hand. But there's just three accounts in scripture showing us that the, the will of the Lord is made more clearly known to us when we give ourselves over to times of fasting before the Lord. You, I why God does that, it's a kind of, as we said, it, fasting is humbling ourselves before God. And so God then imparts His grace to us, and part of His grace is He reveals His will to us as to what He wants us to do. And then there's also um, another aspect to fasting. Again, you know, people say you know, but there's no account in Scripture that shows us in the New Testament uh, gives us instructions on how to fast. And so because there's no instructions on how to fast, it cannot be for us. But that's not true because the Bible actually does give us some instruction on how to fast. And that's in 1 Corinthians uh, 7 verse 5. Uh, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. Why? That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so there, the Apostle Paul is talking about intimacy between a husband and wife. And so he says, when you um, are going to give yourself over to fasting and prayer, one of the things you have to do is you have to abstain from intimacy between the husband and wife. Um, and that's by consent for a period of time between the two of them. And so one of the, the instructions given on fasting is that there should also be no intimacy between a husband and wife during that period when the two of them have agreed, all right, we're going to give ourselves over to fasting on this particular day and we will give ourselves over to prayer. But at the same time, they will not be intimate with each other during that time as well. And so definitely the scripture under the New Testament in the epistles gives us instructions on how to fast. And one of the instructions given is that married couples during their time of fasting should also not be intimate. And so now the scripture does give us instructions, New Testament saints in the epistles on just how we should fast. And so, but notice that fasting and prayer is always linked together. We never fast, there's no evidence in Scripture that fasting on its own without prayer is sanctioned by God. Fasting is always linked to prayer. And so if you're going to fast um, and not pray, then I think you're kind of missing it because there's no indication in Scripture that fasting on its own without prayer does anything. We're meant to be fasting and praying together so that we can uh, reap the spiritual benefit thereof. And so I think that's enough that we want to deal with with regards to the topic of fasting in dealing with uh, our living sacrifice, which are dealing with these bodies uh, in, under the topic of the body of man.
But it leads us into the next uh, uh, section I want to deal with, and that is our natural diet. Now again, don't forget, we, in this series of teachings, it becomes very practical because dealing with our bodies is a practical issue. Um, and so we need to look at this aspect because our natural diet, because don't forget, let's go back to the example of God being the landlord, we being the tenant. And so as a tenant, we're expected to do certain, we have certain responsibilities for the house that we live in. And one of those responsibilities we have is we're meant to feed these bodies that we live in. But we're meant to feed them responsibly and not in any kind of excess in any direction. And that includes our natural diet. The scripture we can look at is in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 29. Um, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And so, the Holy Spirit equates the way that we nourish and cherish our bodies with the way that the Lord nourishes and cherishes His church. And so, the Lord is very responsible in the way that he feeds his his church, um, in that he gives them their correct food at the right time, and you can go back and there's many scriptures that deal with it. And so, for baby Christians, he feeds them with the milk of the word. For mature believers, he feeds them with the solid food of God's word, and he also feeds them, um, you know, daily, and he feeds them at the right time with the right quantity of food. And so that's the way that the Lord feeds us spiritually as His church. Now the scripture teaches us that we should be applying that same principle in feeding our earthly bodies, these tents that we dwell in. And so we need to um, be discerning in the area of what we feed our bodies. And so when we look after the physical body, there are three main areas that we apply in order to look after these physical bodies that we dwell in and that is in the area of our diet also the area of exercise and in the area of rest those are the three main things that we need to be doing in order to look after these bodies that we we dwell in and so the first area we want to touch on obviously is the area of our diet and we should be feeding our bodies with the right amount of food and not over feeding our bodies. Now, you know, this might sound, you know, this is such a basic uh, comment to be made, but nevertheless, we're living in a society today, especially in the Western world, where people are becoming more and more overweight. It's becoming a problem even in the world. I'm not talking about in the church, but in the world. It's become, it's recognized that. Obesity is becoming a major problem in the Western world. And obviously, obesity is becoming a problem in other parts of the world as well. And so, as Christians, as believers, we should not be falling into that category. Now, it's very simple the way God has designed our bodies. Our bodies will always use up the energy that they require. If we, and when we feed our bodies, uh, we are replacing spent energy. But if we feed our bodies with more food than what our bodies utilize, then the, the, the way the body is designed is that then 
takes that excess food and it stores up the excess as fat because it doesn't need that energy. It can't use it. It's not, it's not being expended. And so it just stores it up and it stores it up as fat and fat continues to grow if we continue to feed our bodies with more than what we used. And so, you know, the equation is as simple as you can get. We're meant to eat that which we use and not anymore because if we do, we're going to store up fat. Um, we shouldn't eat any less either. We should eat what is sufficient for our body's daily needs. Now, God understands how these bodies work um, because He made them. And so He understands the concept that we should only feed our bodies with that which our, our bodies require in order to function on a day-to-day -day basis. And God, if God were in charge of our diets, so let's say for argument's sake, God, uh, we said, God, you're going to now regulate my diet. Uh, for the next three months, six months, you know, you're going to feed my diet. And God now said, okay, well, that's it. I will now regulate your diet. None of us would be fat. Because God knows exactly how much our bodies need, and that's what he would feed us with. Simple as that. You say, well, where are you going to get that in Scripture? Well, let's go have a look at it. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 15 and 16. Scripture says, So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person, according to the number of person, persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. And so for 40 years, our Lord fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. But he only fed them with what they needed. And God knew that they needed one omer. That, uh, you can go do the uh, online comparative to see what that translates into pounds and kilograms. But that was the, the amount of food that an individual needed for his daily requirements. And that's what God fed them with. Nothing more. God didn't give them two omers a day. God gave them one. And because one was sufficient for their daily requirements. And so if God were in charge of our diets today, we wouldn't be fat. Because God would feed us with that which we require. He knows exactly what we require. He made our bodies. And so that's the way God looks at it. And as believers, we need to have... Uh, the concept of we need to put food into the correct context because as I say in in society today food is becoming an issue because more and more people are becoming overweight and the reason they're becoming overweight is because they consume more than they utilize and so the natural thing for the body to do is then to store up food as fat and so our Lord Jesus and the Apostle Paul in these two passages of scriptures just kind of put food into the right context. Look what our Lord says. Luke chapter 12, verse 23. He says, Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Now, I know in the context of that scripture, our Lord is saying, guys, don't worry about your food. Uh, God will take care of you. And that's the context that our Lord is talking about. But nevertheless, he does make the statement, life is more than food. And so our Lord is also saying, guys, do not place great emphasis on food. Now, I'm not saying that we now need to, well, you know, 
throw away all the good stuff and we should really only eat, I don't know, bread and water. That's not the case at all. We're meant to enjoy the food that the Lord gives us. And yeah, we, we do partake of a variety of food. All that our Lord is saying to us is life is more than food. So don't get so hung up about your, your diet and what you're eating and what you can and cannot eat and things like that. Because there's more to life than food. So our Lord's putting that into the context. And then 1 Corinthians 6.13, the Apostle Paul puts it out there as well. He said, foods for the stomach and the stomach's for food. Um, and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. So indicating to us in our resurrected bodies, we're not going to have uh, stomachs because our, our bodies will not need to digest the food we partake of. How's it, how God's going to do it? I don't know. God will do it. Um, but nevertheless, the stomach will be destroyed. We won't have one. But Paul, again, is, he's just saying, food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. So don't get hung up about food. Don't be, let it start to dominate you. And, you know, there are Christians out there that food is really important to them. And you can see it because they're quite tubby. And so we really, that, that's not a good testimony to be um, very, very much overweight. I'm not talking about a little bit of excess of uh, fat, but I'm talking about obesity now. It's not a good testimony. Because all it is showing us is that you, you lack the fruit of self-control. You're, you're, spirit, you, you're spiritually weak in that area. And thus your, your, your body dominates you as a believer in that area. And that's not a good sign. And so it's a, it's a very simple thing. And as I say, there's, there's absolutely no constraints placed upon us under the new covenant as to what we, we, we can eat whatever we desire. The scripture is in Romans 14, 14. He's, uh, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus. Jesus convinced this Jewish boy that this is the case. He said that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And, but Paul was persuaded that he could eat anything. God had explained it to him very clearly that under the new covenant, we have no dietary constraints like the Jews did under the old covenant. God has said this, there were certain foods that to them was unclean. God didn't say that the food was unclean. He said to them it was unclean. Uh, because God wanted to... Um, differentiate them as uh, his people in the earth and so God gave them their own calendar and he gave them their own diet that they had to adhere to and a lot of other things which kind of highlighted these are God's people but under the new covenant that's not the case anymore we don't have a calendar and we do not have any dietary constraints so yes we can partake of whatever food we desire there's nothing that we should withhold uh, from eating but eat with moderation. So in other words, the, 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 the equation is very simple, that I eat what I'm going to use. If I'm not going to use it, don't eat it. Um, and don't get hung up about it. Don't, don't let food become a big issue in your life. Um, and the way you can work out if you're starting to eat too much, <laughs> it's quite obvious, because when you can't get into your pants anymore, then you know that I need to change my diet again and uh, cut back on some of the, uh, the intake. Because my output is not exceeding my intake, and so my intake exceeds my output, and therefore my uh, body tends to put on weight, and, and, and it stores it as fat. So that's the practical aspect. Uh, we need to enjoy what we eat, um, but we're not to 
be dominated by food. That's not a, a good sign for a believer. Then we're going to look at another um, practical step again, and that is bodily exercise. Now people say, okay, but where is that in the Bible? 1 Timothy 4.8. Think about who's writing now. I know it's the Apostle Paul writing to the church, but it, it, all Scripture is inspired by God. And so, in fact, it is the Holy Spirit using the Apostle Paul to write to the church. And look what he says. For bodily, bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so people read that scripture and say, yes, I can, but bodily exercise only profits a little, so why even bother? Well, um, it does profit. There is some added value there. Um, now, I don't want to get into the connotations of what all the added values are, but if you, if you have a healthy body that is fit and, and not overweight, then you're able to give yourself to prayer more often, and there's a whole lot of things you can do. Whereas if you're unfit and you are overweight, there's, there's certain constraints uh, placed upon you. And you do not have as much mobility as one who is uh, healthy and fit. And so when the Holy Spirit says there is a little profit to bodily exercise, well, then we should look at it and say, okay, well, if there is some profit there, because he's talking about obviously uh, the health, the lifestyle we would lead. Um, but it's going to be profitable for me in my walk with the Lord as well. Well, then I need to maybe explore that. And not maybe, I should. I should explore that and I should partake of some exercise and not um, allow my body to become, you know, just flabby and waste away. And so, I, you know, when people want to go um, climb a mountain to go and pray, I can't join them because I'm just not fit enough to get up that mountain. So I'll pray for you guys down here. You guys go pray up there. Um, so you, you don't want to get to that point where you can't really partake of certain things, even in a spiritual context, because your body is just not uh, wired up for that because you've allowed it to degenerate to that degree. Now, um, so all right, what kind of exercise should we be doing and how much exercise should we be doing? Should we, should we become fitness fanatics, and that's taking it again to the nth degree, and you're going off in the ditch on the other side. God doesn't say you guys need to all become um, fitness fanatics, that's not the case. We should be doing sufficient exercise so that there's no constraints placed upon us in doing what the Lord has called us to do. And now let's have a look at our Lord Jesus as an example. Our Lord Jesus, when he walked this earth, very often, would go up a mountain to pray. You can get this scriptures over more and more. And there's more than enough scriptural evidence for that. Matthew 17, 1 is just one of those accounts when our Lord went up to the mountain to pray. Now, our Lord would go up on top of a mountain to pray, and very often on his own, by the way, he would do this. Now, why did our Lord do that? It's because you go look in the book of Hebrews. Uh, uh, I don't know the exact passage of scripture, but in the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about how our Lord actually did pray when he was on the earth. And our Lord was actually very loud when he prayed to God. The Bible talks about um, with strong crying, he, he made his, his, his uh, with vehement crying uh, and, and, and loud crying, he would make his request be, be, be made known unto God. Now, God, uh, God, the Lord couldn't do that 
in a room where everybody was um, in other rooms around him, staying in a house because he would wake everybody up because our Lord would very often pray at night. And so our Lord would go to the top of a mountain because at the top of a mountain he could cry out to God at full strength and nobody would be disturbed. But he could uh, speak to God in that manner. Uh, that's how the Lord prayed, by the way. And so he would very often go up the top of a mountain and cry out to God. I know when I was a young Christian, there was this little um, hill just across the road from where we lived. And many nights I would go up there and uh, cry out to God. And you can do that in that environment because you're not disturbing anyone. Because you, when you, you're up there, people below can't hear you. But God certainly can. Anyway, so that's what our Lord would do. And so he would quite often climb mountains to go pray to God. But also our Lord was very fit from the point of view as he walked very long distances. Go look at the, the map. And God walked everywhere. Our Lord Jesus walked everywhere. That's why when he got to Sychar that time, it was midday and the Bible says he was weary. You know, he sat down at the well. His body was tired because he'd been walking some long distances. And so our Lord would walk wherever he went. And he certainly went to a lot of places. All right, there were times they sailed as well uh, on the Sea of Galilee. But most of the time, our Lord would walk from one town to the next. And so our Lord was actually quite fit. Um, and people say, okay, all right, that makes sense because our Lord was, you know, as a 30-year-old man, you know, he was still quite a young man, so he couldn't be quite fit. Okay, so now we're going to touch on a, an area that is not taught too often in the church, but... Uh, I brought it up and I need to teach on it because we just need to, because we're looking at our Lord Jesus as an example of the kind of exercise we should be giving ourselves to. So what I'm saying is that as believers, we should be fit enough to walk with our Lord as his disciples if the Lord was still on the earth. And so we should be able to keep up with the Lord wherever he, so if the Lord said, Mike, I'm going to go down, walk down to Capernaum um, to go and minister. You going to enjoy me? Yes, Lord, I'm with you. And so I can now walk with him because I'm at the same level that he's at with regards to the fitness of my body. And that's where we're really wanting to highlight. So, the Lord being a young man of 30 years old, is that true, yes or no? Actually, it's not true because when our Lord went to the cross, our Lord was in actual fact. 40 years old and now that's not taught very often in the church in fact I've never heard it taught in the church but nevertheless it's the truth of the matter so we're going to go through a little bit of scripture and tie it in with historical records uh, that are you can easily research they are it's part of um, history and you can then tie it in and you can see just the timeline and you can then work it out for yourself it's quite it's quite a simple exercise and you arrive at the fact that our Lord was 40 years old when he went to the cross. And so the first scripture we want to look at is in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through to 6. The scripture says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 2, This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And so Mary, we know the story, she gave birth to our Lord Jesus in this, the town of Bethlehem. So when did Joseph and Mary go to the town of Bethlehem? Well, the scripture says they went to be registered because it, um, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And there was a census. If you go look at historical records, um, and this is evidenced in history books, it's not hidden from anybody, um, Caesar Augustus decreed two censuses. One was uh, in the ADs, this was after our Lord was born, but the, the one that pertains to our Lord Jesus going to be born in Bethlehem was in the year 8 BC. Um, that is when Caesar Augustus decreed that the, there should be a census throughout the Roman Empire, and that is when Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem and our Lord is born, and that is in the year 8 BC. As I say, you can go look it up online, it's not a, a, a hidden truth out there, it's you know, part of historical records. So that's tying up that scripture with the, the actual historical account of what actually transpired in the year 8 BC. So our Lord Jesus was actually born into the earth in the year 8 BC. Um, then we get to another scripture. And the other scripture is in Matthew. We're just following our Lord's, the, the timeline of our Lord's life from the time he was born until the time he goes to the cross. And we're establishing that in fact there was a 40 year period that our Lord was on the earth. And so we, he was born in 8 BC. The next scripture we want to look at is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14 through to 21. Scripture says, When he arose, talking about Joseph, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Verse 15, And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now verse 19, now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So when our Lord was born, he was born in the year 8 BC. He goes, he gets uh, um, when he was 40 days old, um, Joseph and Mary take him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. You, you know, there, there is that Luke's Gospel account about that. And they present him to the Lord because he was the firstborn. It, at that time, Joseph gets a dream from God. says, you need to get up and you need to leave the country because Herod is wanting to destroy the child. And so Joseph and Mary leave from Jerusalem and they go down to Egypt. And they live in Egypt for a period of four years. Our Lord is four years old when um, Joseph receives his dream from the Lord telling him, all right, Herod is now dead, you can go back into Israel. And we know that because, again, the historical record is very plain for us that in the year 4 BC, that is the year that Herod died. This is the Herod that wanted to kill the Lord Jesus, and who, who murdered all those babies in and around Bethlehem. 
He dies in the year 4 BC. That's again, it's a historical record. It's not hidden from anyone. So our Lord gets born in 8 BC. He goes down to Egypt with Joseph and Mary, and they live there for four years. Our Lord is then four years old when Herod dies, and God says to Joseph in the dream, you can now bring Jesus back into Israel. So our Lord was four years old when he came back into Israel at the death of Herod. Now we get to the next uh, um, event on our Lord's timeline in his um, life on the earth. And that is in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. The scripture says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetra of Galilee, his brother Philip tetra of Ituria, of the, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetra of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And so this is talking about the, the year that John the Baptist began his ministry. And the, the, the Luke, the writer of the, the Gospel of Luke, gives us very clear guidelines as to when John the Baptist's ministry begins, because he lists all of those people in their positions at this time. And he says, at this time, John began his ministry. Because the scripture says, Then the word of God came to John in the wilderness, and he went into all the region, preaching the baptism of repentance. So when did John begin his ministry? John began his ministry in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, again the historical records are very clear for all of us to see, occurred in the year 28 AD. That's the historical fact. That was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So John the Baptist begins his ministry in the year 28 AD. Now in the year 28 AD, remember our Lord was born in 8 BC, 4 years old in 4 BC, 28 AD, he is now 37 years of age. That's, that's how old Jesus was. It's you know, quite simple to work out the math. So our Lord was 37 years old when John the Baptist began his ministry. Now our Lord Jesus began his ministry one year after John began his ministry, because John was sent to prepare Israel for the coming Messiah. And John had one year to prepare. God gave John one year of, of ministering on his own, because John still ministered for a while after our Lord did appear. But nevertheless, for that first year, John was now ministering on his own. And our Lord was 37 years old at that age, and at that time. And so one year later, our Lord then begins his ministry. He goes up to John and John baptizes him and our Lord enters into his ministry. And our Lord's ministry lasted on the earth for two years, not the three that we all think. It was for two years. Because um, again, there's no scripture that says our Lord ministered for three years. But anyway, for the two years, John's gospel reveals that very plainly to us. And the first scripture we see in John's Gospel, 
um, is in John 2 verse 13. Our Lord Jesus began his public ministry at the Feast of Passover. And he ended his public ministry at the Feast of Passover. That was the timeline given to him by God. And so the Feast of Passover, the first Feast of Passover that our Lord began his public ministry in is in John chapter 2, verse 13. That's when he started his ministry. Our Lord then had one Feast of Passover between, in the middle of his ministry. And that is in John 6, verse 4. And then our Lord ended, we all know, his ministry at the Feast of Passover, which is in John 13, verse 1. And so, our Lord Jesus, that's why John is, is very clear about the fact, the Holy Spirit is very clear through the Apostle John, to mention those three Passover feasts. The first one, when our Lord launches his ministry, the one that took place in the middle of his ministry, and the Passover feast that took place at the end of his ministry. So our Lord had three Passover feasts during his ministry, but that three Passover feasts would then have spanned a period of two calendar years. That's, that's how it works, timeline-wise. And so our Lord began his public ministry at the age of 38, and he went to the cross two years later at the age of 40. And so 40 is a very um, prominent number in the, in the scriptures. You know, God, 40 years in the wilderness, God, uh, uh, there's just so many things that God did over 40 year periods of time. And so our Lord walked on the earth for 40 years and he goes to the cross at the age of 40. So you say, well, what about the scripture where Luke 3.23 says that Jesus began his public ministry, uh, says began his ministry at about 30 years of age. Well, that's exactly the case. It was about 30 years. It was 37. Now, the Holy Spirit knows, knew exactly how old Jesus was when he began his public ministry. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write his gospel. And so the Holy Spirit could have made Luke say, and Jesus, because the Holy Spirit knew exactly the age that Jesus was when he began his ministry. And so he could have made Luke say, uh, that Jesus was 37, or uh, as people say, Jesus must have been 30 years old. Um, and so the Holy Spirit could have said, well, Jesus was 30, but he doesn't say that. He says that Jesus was about 30 years old. And so about includes 37, about 30 being uh, in 37. Because it's not a, a major issue. I mean, this is not, don't, don't start stoning me and all that kind of stuff. I'm just putting it out there from the point of view of this is the historical timeline that just ties in with our Lord's life. 8 BC, 4 BC, uh, 28 AD, sorry, and then our Lord dying on the cross in 31 AD, two years later. And if you add it all up, our Lord Jesus was 40 years old when he goes to the cross. And so our Lord Jesus was not a, a young man when he walked the earth. Because remember, he, he, he starts his ministry at the age 38, 39, 40. That's the time that he walks all over the place to go minister. And he climbs mountains to go pray. And so that's just kind of putting it into context for us as to how much exercise we should be giving ourselves over to in order to walk this Christian walk. We should be um, on a level with our Lord when He was on the earth. So if our Lord invited us to walk with Him, 
to Capernaum to go minister uh, that day, we could say, yes, Lord, I'm with you, let's go. Or if our Lord invited us to climb a mountain with him to go like Peter, James, and John, uh, because he wanted to go pray, Lord, I'm with you, lead the way. We'll, we'll climb the mountain with you. And so that's the kind of fitness level we should be at uh, in our Christian walk. And so, again, all practical stuff. Uh, none of it is super, super spiritual, but we're dealing with the body of man. But we're going to end the teaching on that particular point today, and we'll carry on. We want to look at physical rest and all that other aspect with regards to dealing with the body in the next uh, teaching. But we're going to end it on that point today. Amen.